All right, if we could, um, let's go ahead and uh, to get into the Christmas spirit, right? To be, I mean, because the countdown is, you know, we have only a, a couple days away, and I'm sure that with Christmas shopping and with the hustle and bustle of things and going around and visiting, and you guys are going to be doing a lot more of that, friends, and you're going to be visiting family, of course, for Christmas. Um, I want to ask you a question, okay? What is your favorite Christmas movie of all time? All right, well, you don't have to say it out loud, okay? Yeah, yeah, Die Hard, yeah, definitely, right? What is your favorite Christmas movie of all time? And it's all your opinion, okay? So that's really cool to be able to do that. I want you to answer this to the person beside you, okay? Can we do that? And please be as specific as you can as to why it's your favorite Christmas movie, okay? So what is your favorite Christmas movie? Die Hard, something you said, right? And why is it your favorite Christmas movie? Can we do that right now? Can we just share maybe for like three minutes? All right, all of us have our favorite Christmas movies. I love It's a Wonderful Life, all right? A classic. How many of you have seen It's a Wonderful Life? Would you raise your hand? Okay, good, it's not just me, okay? It's a very old movie, but it's a tradition with me where I watch it every Christmas. And sometimes, and most of the times, just alone, okay? Because my daughter doesn't like to really watch it. My wife has watched it a couple times. But it's really my favorite one. It's a tradition for me uh, to watch it. Uh, for those of you that don't know, you know, this is public domain, of course, that I'm sharing because it's so old. It's about a man named George Bailey, played by the incomparable Jimmy Stewart. I can do a mean Jimmy Stewart impersonation, but nobody would care because nobody knows what Jimmy Stewart you know, sounds like in this day and age, but that's the only impression I can do, by the way. So it's kind of sad, right? But George Bailey, uh, played by Jimmy Stewart, gives his life to better a small town in a rural area called Bedford Falls. And so here he sacrifices the possibility of fame and fortune. He really sacrifices the American dream to help these poor people to buy homes in Bedford Falls. And that's a beautiful thing, isn't it? And there's an unforeseen tragedy, and I, I won't go into it in detail because I, you know, for those of you that haven't seen the movie, I want you to be able to really enjoy it. This unforeseen tragedy affects George so deeply that he contemplates suicide. He gets on a bridge and he's ready to jump off because he feels there's no solution. And it's at this time in the movie that God sends an angel, okay? His name is Clarence, to show him what life would have been like without him. And through it all, George Bailey realizes that he has truly lived a wonderful life. And with this newfound perspective, he's a new man. He's a transformed person. He's a changed individual. And here he runs home to see his family, right? And as he passes by everywhere that he normally sees, he wishes everybody a Merry Christmas. As he runs through the town, he says, Merry Christmas, Bedford Falls, right? That's pretty good, then. Merry Christmas, Bailey Building and Loan. Merry Christmas, Emporium. And he runs all throughout. He even stops at his nemesis, the evil Mr. Potter, and he knocks on the window and he says, Merry Christmas, Mr. Potter. You know, that's a beautiful scene, isn't it, right? One moment, he's ready to jump off a bridge and commit suicide. And the next moment, he's ready to bless everyone around him. What happened? What's the change? Well, here we see that the story is all about George Bailey understanding the truth to living a wonderful life. 
And really, that's my desire for you this Christmas uh, season. I want to desire for you this morning that every one of you would live out a wonderful life, that you would have a perspective that might transform you. It might change you, that you would have this perspective of a life full of meaning and success and relevance, a life full of purpose in God's eyes, a life so well lived that at the end of it, God would exclaim, well done, you've been good and you've been faithful. See, in order to live out that kind of life, that God himself would be pleased with the kind of life that we live, we need to comprehend some divine truths this morning. In order to understand a wonderful life and to make it a reality, we need to look not at a Christmas movie, but rather the original Christmas story. And it's found in Luke chapter 2. If you take your Bibles, you could turn there. We're going to have it up here. But in Luke chapter 2, here under the divine inspiration of God himself, he shows us what it means to live a wonderful life. Luke chapter 2, I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. Here's the word of God. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. And this was the first census that took place when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Verse 3, And everyone went to their own town to register. And so Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. Verse 5, and he went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for, uh, available for them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks by night. Verse 9, and an angel of the Lord appeared to them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. Verse 10, But the angel said to them, Don't be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Messiah the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths lying in a manger. Verse 13, Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let's pray. Father, we ask that this morning you would allow us to see Christmas, that you would allow us, Lord, to experience Christmas through your word. We pray, Lord, that you would give us hearts that truly would be merry, that we would live out wonderful lives that, God, that you've called us to. And Father, that you would allow these truths to affect and maybe even transform those here this morning. We pray, Lord, that in all these things, you would have the preeminence. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said. Now, if you were to ask anyone, Christian or non-Christian, what stories they know from the Bible, this would probably be the number one story. But as you read the Christmas story, did you ever stop to think how different everything was 2,000 years ago? I want you to think about that. That on their trip from Nazareth to Bethlehem, Mary and Joseph never used Google Maps to get where they're going. They never used the Waze app. 
right? Joseph never stopped at in and out to get a double-double with, uh, you know, animal-style fries. That here, Mary never ordered a venti, non-calf, decaf, sugar-free, soy, caramel latte at Starbucks. Can you imagine, right? That Joseph never Skyped or even Zoomed his relatives to tell them where he was coming for the census. He didn't own an iPhone. He never heard of an iPad. There were no MacBooks back then. Mary never Instagrammed any baby stuff. No Lamaze classes. No manger pics, right? They didn't post any of their travel adventures on Facebook. Imagine no Snapchat, no blogs, no vlogs. None of these things that we do in the 21st century all the time. And sometimes we think that because they didn't go through our contemporary experiences, that this story is kind of irrelevant. I know we wouldn't say that out loud, but some of us were tempted to think, well, that's a nice tradition and all, but because that happened 2,000 years ago, it really doesn't have much bearing for me today. But can I share with you, nothing could be further from the truth because humanity at its core hasn't changed in 2,000 years. Technology has changed. Advancements in technology have changed. But the human heart, the human soul, has not changed in 2,000 years. And we see in this story that Mary and Joseph suffered the same trials just like we do. They understood fear and insecurity and disappointments just like we do. They had to learn perseverance through difficulty. They had to learn how to trust in the Lord, how to walk in obedience, even when things didn't make sense. They, had to ex they expressed worship in the midst of confusing circumstances. You see, Mary and Joseph had to live out what we face in our lives even today. And so before we're tempted to relegate Luke chapter 2 to some ancient history or some cultural irrelevance, I want to encourage you to focus on the timeless truths because there are truths that are timeless for us. Timeless truths that God desires to teach you in this Christmas story. Hey, God's word is never irrelevant, amen? God's word is never outdated. It's not some dry, dusty, antiquated history book. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12 says, For the word of God is living and active. You see, the Bible is the living word of God. It's alive. It's active to meet your needs in the 21st century. You see, God's word can meet the needs of your contemporary life wherever you may be. This Christmas may be a season of loneliness for you. Do you know God's word can be a companion through the isolation that you're facing? Because God's word is God's thoughts, his plan, his will for us. And the Bible records those things for us to hear. They're timeless. This Christmas may be one of indecision for you. Do you know the Bible can act as a guide to help you through those steps that you need to do to get to the next level, to get to the next place? This may be a Christmas of discovery. And so the Bible can be instruction for you, can be God's very will spoken and expressed in your life. This may be a Christmas of doubt or disillusionment. Do you know the Bible can be your inspiration? It can be that encouragement that will give you strength to be able to, to move on into the next season of your life. You see, the Bible is timeless because God's thoughts are timeless. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, 
All scripture is God-breathed. That means that God breathes his very thoughts, his very ideas in the Bible. They are his eternal word. And so the Bible can cross through ages and generations. It can cross through history to meet you in your life just as it did those lives of the people that were before you. Amen? There are things that we need to understand. And we want to look at these timeless truths from Luke chapter 2 that are going to give us the right perspective that we need to live that wonderful life that God desires for us. And so there are three reminders to living a wonderful life, okay? And the, uh, and the first point is, and if you're taking notes, write this down, that God is sovereign over our lives. That God is sovereign over our problems. That God is sovereign over everything and over man. We call it the hand of providence. Let's look in verse 1. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. Here, here's my question for you. How many here, by, uh, by show of hands, knows very much about Caesar Augustus? Would you raise your hand? Okay. You know enough that if I were to ask you to come up and kind of share some stuff about Caesar Augustus, that you could do it. Could you raise your hand? Not one person? My goodness. Well, okay, good, good. Here's my point, okay? Here's my point is that many of us don't know about Caesar Augustus, right? He was the most powerful, most influential, most important, most popular man of his time. And yet, we don't know very much about him. His name actually was Octavian or Julius Octavius, and he was the nephew of Julius Caesar. Some of you, we've kindly faintly heard of him before. Now, his title or the title that was given to him by the Roman Senate was Augustus, okay? And that means exalted or majestic one. And he was so loved by the people of Rome in his day that there was a plaque erected, not out of uh, you know, being forced to do it, they did it willingly, a plaque erected in Rome that called him the savior of the world, right? He was so revered by his contemporaries in Rome that at his death, they deified him as a god to be worshipped. But it's interesting, isn't it, that only a few people, only history types, know anything about him. The only reason I know more about him is I majored in history, and my major was actually ancient imperial Roman history. So that's why I know a little bit more than you do about him. But even then, I don't know that much about him, right? Because a lot of the records were lost. So we talk about him this morning only because God's word mentions him briefly. He is not the focus of the divine story at all, and yet God uses this ungodly, arrogant, worldly, secular leader to fulfill his word of prophecy. You know, in Micah chapter 5 and verse 2, this is a prophecy where we see God uses the secular to fulfill the sacred word. Uh, the sacred word, Micah 5, 2, you don't have to turn there, but listen to this. You know, prophesied thousands of years before, it says, but you, Bethlehem, Though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come from me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. This was a messianic prophecy. This had to be fulfilled by the one that God chose as the Messiah, or God was foretelling as the Messiah. What does this mean? It means that Jesus had to completely fulfill this biblical prophecy, that he could not have been born anywhere else and be the savior of the world, right? It's a messianic prophecy. Now, here's my question. How do you get a young couple who's pregnant, 
who live all the way in northern Israel, that's Nazareth, to come all the way down to southern Israel, to Bethlehem. Enter an imperial decree, right? Verse 1 says, Caesar Augustus issued a decree, a census, that all the world be registered. Verse 3, and everyone went to their own town to register. Verse 4, so Joseph went up from Nazareth to Bethlehem. My point is that God can use, <coughs> quote, secular situations, even, uh, quote, godless people to fulfill his plan. You see, Caesar's whole reason for the census was taxing his empire. This was purely for his rule and his benefit and Rome's interest. This leader was only thinking of himself, and here God uses him to fulfill God's prophecy. You know, Proverbs 21 and verse 1 says, The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord, and like rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. You see, those in power, those people that we would consider the authority, you know God channels and turns their hearts? You know, a person could think, a person in power could think, it's my will that's being done, but God is superintending something for his grand plan. You know, it's ironic, isn't it? Or isn't it ironic that it appears to the world that Mary and Joseph were helpless, hapless pawns in Caesar's grand design, yet in reality it was Caesar who was the true pawn in God's plan to bring forth the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. It's ironic that everyone in the first century knew about Caesar, and only a few nobodies knew about Mary and Joseph. Yet in the 21st century, only a handful of scholars know about Caesar Augustus, while everyone knows the story about Mary, Joseph, and Jesus the Messiah. You see, God is sovereign over the plans of men. His sovereign hand superintends all of it. His hand of providence works all things out for his good. You know, that is completely uh, comforting to a child of God. And if you are a Christian here this morning, you know that God knows what he's doing. He's got it all planned out. That we can rest peacefully knowing that he's going to bring his plans to fruition. See, we don't have to worry that chaos reigns. Chaos doesn't reign. God reigns. And we don't need to live in fear of the future. We can live by faith that the future is in God's control. You see, God can use evil men. God can use men in authority to fulfill his plan. You know what else? God can also use difficult circumstances to fulfill his plan. You see, no one would say that Mary and Joseph were out of God's will going to Bethlehem, right? Everyone is convinced, looking at Luke chapter 2, that this was truly God's will. Yet, I want you to notice that God's will meant trials. It meant hardships. It meant going through suffering. Think about this. As we look at the, the passage, this trip was 90 miles on a donkey, and Mary was full term in her pregnancy. Okay, And probably scholars say it would have taken, strenuous with strenuous travel, 15 days to get to the uh, to get to where they were going. Imagine, God's will was long, and it was an agonizing trip from north to south. Not only that, but the baby was delivered in a stable. It was deliver uh, he was delivered in a manger. You know what a manger is? It's a feeding trough for animals. So this was a delivery that was done among animals, among farm animals, in the most humble situation that no mother would be okay with, right, in traveling. 
extremely humiliating, but yet sometimes that's God's will. You see, God's work and God's will sometimes means that King Herod's occur in our lives. Now, we know the Christmas story that King Herod sent soldiers to kill their baby for fear that a rival king would be born. And so they had to flee to Egypt right after the child was born. Imagine the loneliness and the isolation of being forced into a foreign place that you're not familiar with. Yet, we know in this story that they were in the very center of God's will. Let me share with you. You may be going through difficult situations right now, and in the world's eyes, it looks like no one is in control. But this Christmas story shows us that God is in total control of your life. What are the Caesar Augustuses, those situations that are completely out of your control? What are the Roman decrees, the census, those things that are so difficult for you right now to manage and to complete? What are the mangers, those unexpected humbling circumstances that leave you feeling small and insignificant? Are there Herods right now in your life? People or situations that attack and persecute you and it seems relentlessly? What are the Egypts, those places that leave you isolated and dry in a desert experience? You see, the first thing we need to realize that is if we want to live a wonderful life, that God is sovereign over all of our lives. He uses the Caesars and the censuses, the mangers, the Herods, the Egypts, all of it. And his providential hand is molding and making us into a unique vessel that he desires to use for his glory. Amen? That is a wonderful life. The second truth we want to look at, if we can look at it really quickly, is God uses the ordinary to do the extraordinary, okay, or extraordinary. Now, you can't read this narrative and not be amazed at how God uses the common, the mundane, the ordinary, okay? Let's look in verse 4. And so Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee. I want to stop right there. Now, if you guys didn't know, Joseph was a young blue-collar carpenter. Nothing special about him. Scholars say he might have been 19 to 20 years of age, okay? And he comes from an insignificant podunk town called Nazareth. Back then, nobody would have heard of that jerkwater town, okay? As a matter of fact, in John 1.46, okay, when the disciple Philip tells Nathaniel, we've seen the Messiah and he's from Nazareth. He's Jesus of Nazareth. You know what Nathaniel says? This is very telling. He says, Nazareth, can anything good come from there, right? That was the unofficial motto of the town, Nazareth, can anything good come from there, right? That uh, underlines the fact that it was insignificant. And let's look in verse 5. To register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was with child. This was a teenage girl. Scholars say maybe anywhere from 16 years of age, 16 to 17 years of age. Um, and she was pregnant. So far, nothing great, nothing interesting, right? The teenage girls are pregnant, okay? Verse 6. And while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. Look in verse 7. And she gave birth to her firstborn a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger. That means strips of cloth, right? That means something very humble. They had to find strips of cloth to put together to, to place on the baby so that the baby wouldn't get cold. And then they placed him in the most humblest places of all, a feeding trough for animals. Now, if... if if I were God, and I'm not trying to be irreverent, right? 
I would never have sent my son to earth that way. There's no way that I would place him in a situation where he's shunned by people, that there was no place to live, that he'd be born in a stable, in a feeding trough, right? I would have put him in the best of circumstances. And what's with those shepherds, right? Can, can you understand how crazy this is? And this is the craziest part of the story to me, okay? Let's look in verse 8. And in the same region, there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flock by night. Verse 9, and an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. Verse 13, and suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God. So imagine this picture, okay? Thousands upon thousands of angels, these heavenly messengers that are praising God, and I'm sure, you know, so they're, they're probably singing, and, you know, they're, they're chanting, and they're announcing Messiah's birth, and guess what they're doing this with? Five to ten shepherds, okay? How anticlimactic can you get, right? Of all people that God could announce the birth of his son to, it's five or ten shepherds? Shepherds were the outcasts of Jewish society, they were ceremonially unclean because of their job out in the fields. These people were shunned, and they were snubbed, and they were overlooked. It was not a job that mothers would want their kids to, look, to, to, to vie for, right? To be, to be a part of. And we wouldn't even care about them unless God hadn't put the shepherds in this Christmas story. Now again, if I were God, I would have announced the birth of my son to Caesars and Pharaohs and Herods, and rulers, and power players, and the nations. That would be more fitting for God. So doesn't it seem awkward and out of place for angels to announce this advent to shepherds? And here's my point to this, that God's ways are not our ways. That God has always delighted in using the ordinary. Look at the Bible. How many times do we see that God's MO is to use the common, the mundane, and the ordinary. God always is in the habit of using the ordinary. Look at Bible characters that God used. David, the last son of Jesse, a shepherd boy in the backside of a desert. Moses, when he was called, was a slave from Egypt, a stutterer, insecure and unsure as a person. Elijah, a hillbilly hick from the hills of Tishbe, when God called him a redneck from the word go. The prophets, almost all of them simple folk. And we studied this, didn't we, a, a, a few months ago in the New Testament. The disciples like Peter and Andrew, James, John, Thomas, uh, James the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Bartholomew, they're all blue-collar fishermen from Galilee, except for Matthew, who was a hated tax collector, and si Simon, who was a renegade, marginalized zealot. And how about Jesus? When God the Father sent God the Son to this earth and clothed him with human flesh, I want you to notice how he presented him to the world. And Isaiah 53 prophesies this. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of the dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. God predicted that he'd be an ordinary, common, mundane appearance. He didn't look like a supermodel. He didn't talk like an orator. And here's my point. In 1 Corinthians 1, 26, listen to what God says. 
through the mouth of, or, or the pen of Paul. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the strong. And God chose the lowly things of the world to dis- and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, verse 29, so that no one may boast before him. And here's why God's MO is to use the ordinary. When God uses the ordinary, the inadequate, he uses them because they realize that they're ordinary and profoundly inadequate. You see, when God does the extraordinary through the ordinary, then all glory is given to God. See, God's glory is shown through the ordinary things. How happy does that make us? Because how about you this morning? Do you feel ordinary? Do you feel common? Maybe this Christmas season, you come to God insecure and inadequate. Hey, that's exactly where you need to be. Because the second thing we need to realize if we want to live a wonderful life is that God uses the ordinary to do the extraordinary. God loves and delights to use people just like you and me. He loves to do incredible, extraordinary things. If we would just commit our lives to him, if we would take risks for his kingdom and live for his glory, we would see the amazing things, the wonderful things that God would reveal to us this year. Listen, we know that God is sovereign over our lives, that God uses the ordinary to do the extraordinary. This is the third timeless truth, and I'll be done. The third truth, if you're taking notes, is Jesus is the reason for every season. Let's look in verse 8. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And I want you to notice the response of these shepherds, okay? Verse 9, And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. The response of the shepherds were, they were terrified. Now, why is this? Well, duh, isn't it obvious? Because these extraterrestrial, supernatural beings, uh, this being is appearing to the shepherds, and God's glory is hovering around that, that angel, right? But in verse 13, I want you to see this, okay? And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God. Well, of course they'd be terrified. It's not just one angel, but it's thousands of angels that appear to them. But I want you to notice something that maybe you've glossed over and you haven't thought through. And I think it's very, very significant. I want you to notice the word host. Do you know the Hebrew word for host? And it's found so many times in the Bible. Always refers to an army. The Greek word... Actually, in this, if you look at the Septuagint, means soldiers of an army. Imagine, here we see that this spectacle is an army of angels assembled in the Judean sky shouting praises to the advent of God here on earth. So you know what this tells us? Many times when we think of the, when we think of the gospel story, we think of a Disneyland parade, right? Like fireworks. And we see all these angels, and it's kind of an entertaining thing, right? It's something that, wow, this is a spectacle. It's a Vegas show, right? But that's not, exact, that's not how it is at all. Here we see that the gospel writer is painstakingly making it clear that this was not an entertainment show. This was a military host that was assembled 
right? And this military host is what the shepherds saw. No wonder they were terrified, right? And it makes sense. Israel's Messiah would come as a king, and he would bring about, you know, a new regime. Of course he would come with armies. And this should bring terror to us, right? Right? But interestingly enough, we see in verse 10. But what does the angel say in verse 10? Fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day a Savior. Not a judge, right? Not, not a conqueror, but a Savior who is Messiah the Lord. You see, Jesus didn't come to condemn the world, the Bible says. Didn't, Jesus didn't come to judge the world in his first incarnation. He came to save the world, to save people from their sin. Verse 14, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men whom he is pleased. What I'd like you to do in Luke chapter 2 is I'd like you to view this angel army announcing a peace treaty. God the Father has already signed it, and this peace treaty is through his son, Jesus Christ. What does that tell us? It tells us that a wonderful life means realizing who Jesus is. And that is so important today because this Christmas, when we think of the word Jesus, it, in popular culture, it pops up this idea of a feel-good guru who dispenses good moral teachings or this enlightened Buddha that brings happiness and peace to everyone around or this idea that he's a poster child or a poster baby of general niceties. He's the baby Santa Claus. And that's kind of how we look at Christmas today. But can I share with you that as we look in Luke chapter 2, Jesus marches into reality by showing us that he is not just some feel-good message intent to conjure up sentimental ideas. Rather, he is the Savior, and he is the Lord of your life. Can I get an amen? And he offers you amnesty. He offers you freedom, and he offers you adoption into God's family. Hey, the Bible tells us that mankind is lost that mankind is broken because of sin. And when Jesus came to this earth, he was sent here as the plan of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit so that he might encompass flesh. We call it the incarnation. That he might encompass flesh and that he might live so that he could be a sacrifice for our sins. See, the reason why Jesus is not only for this short Christmas season is that Jesus in Luke chapter 2, was meant to be the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the reason for every season of your life. So when we say the name of Jesus, we must realize that he must be lifted up, not just today, but every day from here on forth. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes just for a moment? Maybe today you've never heard that Christmas story. I'm going to invite Pastor Wilson to come up. But I want you to focus on what the angel says, that unto you is born a Savior, a Messiah, and he is Christ. Father, we just thank you so much for um, your word this morning. And we think about all the times where we felt we were far away where we felt like we weren't good enough, and you invited us back. And I pray that this morning, Lord, um, 
we would be invited back to be a part of your plan so that all the good and the bad and the valleys and the mountains would make sense. We would be able to trust that things are in control. We would know that when we feel insignificant, ordinary, you would still use us. And mostly, God, we would find peace with you. You know, I was sharing with um, some of the leaders yesterday about how um, there were, there's times in my life, this, this one time specifically, where I just kept sinning and walking away and sinning and walking away. And, and then one day, I, I just felt like, man, God, I want to find you again. I want to get close to you, but I just feel like we're miles apart. You know, I've just walked away for, for days and weeks and months. And then God just said, turn around. I'm right here. And this whole distance that I thought was there, he had already traversed for me. I wonder if you this morning feel like you're really far away. And I think this, this hope and celebration that God would do all of this to send his son to earth, you know, cross species, cross time, cross um, dimensions to be with us means that no matter how far away we feel right now, he's with us as well. And so maybe if you feel like super far away from God, or if you're like wanting to get to know him for the first time, I just want to lead you in a really simple prayer. And would love this prayer to be real and to change um, the way you see life, the way that Pastor Dave talked about. God, this morning I want to be close to you again. Thank you for being right behind me. Forgive me of my sins. And let me see your love this week. In Jesus' name, amen. For those of us, for everyone else, um, for all of us, I guess, we want to end our uh, time together with worship and also with communion. So I just want to invite you to participate in taking um, the cracker, which represents Jesus' body broken for us. And then to dip it into the grape juice, which represents his bloodshed for us. And that's because of his sacrifice, we're able to be friends with God. We're able to have peace with him and invite him into his family. All right, we'll join uh, worship and take communion together. <laughs>